And welcome to the Disability Law Show. John Scholes here along with uh, James Fireman covering the show solo again this week. So bring on the questions. He's ready to uh, fire back at you. The email is the easiest way. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Other than that, call him at any time at 1-855-821-5900. If you go to the website disabilityrights.ca, you'll be able to listen to past radio shows of this nature and uh, catch the TV show as well. So we'll inform you of that as we as we go on as well. I want to get right into the email off the top, uh, James, because I know we're not going to do a week that was. We want to get right into the uh, the meat of the content here. Sandra emailed in, uh, says, James, my boyfriend's mother recently passed away and he became very depressed. Uh, they were very, like, sort of rather extremely close. He went on disability leave and got short-term disability. He then applied for long-term because his family doctor and his therapist said that he was not ready to go back, but his claim was rejected. The insurance company says that he wasn't getting enough treatments, but he was following everything his doctor and therapist were prescribing him. I'm afraid that this will make him even sicker and more depressed, and I don't know how to help him. Can you write the insurance company? Can he appeal the decision? They gave him 30 days to appeal, but he didn't do it because he was so anxious. So... You know, when when I think about this kind of question, you know, whether or not you need to write to the insurer, whether that's going to be helpful, you know, you have to look at it from the perspective of the insurer as well, too. And they, you know, get people writing them all the time saying, you know, I've talked to a lawyer and so you better reconsider or even a letter from a lawyer saying, you know, I'm, you know, I, I've been retained by this client and maybe you might want to look at it unless there's something really compelling. If there's something that they have not considered or they're clearly wrong on the law and you're pointing that out. Typically speaking, if it's just a matter of them using what you might consider to be poor judgment, they're just going to ignore that letter. And even if it's beyond that, they're probably going to ignore it too. It's sort of like, you know, when you're on the playground and someone's, you know, picking on you and you're like, oh, well, I'm going to go get my dad and he's going to come beat you up. Like, you know, you can ignore that. It's just, it's sort of the same thing. The, the insurance companies, you know, get these letters hundreds of times a day, I'm quite sure. And until they get a legal claim, they know they don't have to take it seriously. And so that's really the answer. You know, is a letter going to help? No, almost certainly not. In most cases, again, unless there's something, you know, quite unusual about the claim, it's really not going to get their attention unless you bring a legal claim. The other thing that we need to talk about here is um, this 30-day deadline for for appealing the Appeal, case yeah. that uh, that Sander brought up. So every show we at some point, sooner or later, are going to talk <laughs> about the appeal process. Yeah. So it might as well be now. So let's be very clear about this. You do not need to appeal you know, a, a denial or a cutting off of your benefits. If that happens, if you're denied or cut off, you want to bring a legal claim. And the reason is very simple. The appeal process is completely controlled by the insurance company. It is not independent. And much like they have a motivation for denying or cutting off your benefits, they have a motivation for denying your appeal. They're in the business to make profits for their shareholders. And if they've justified cutting off your benefits and thus making more money for their shareholders, it's going to be very difficult to get them to change that position. And unless you have something that completely changes the groundwork, 
it's not going to do any good. And even if there is something that completely changes it, they're probably not going to listen anyway. Hmm. All you're doing by appealing is you're delaying the inevitable. So you might as well start the legal process now. Take the control out of their hands. When you start the legal process, it means you're going to get to the resolution that much sooner. If you do, if you appeal, and sometimes I, I get clients who have appealed two, three, even four times oh. over the course of more than a year. And so, you know, they haven't gotten anywhere. All they've done is wasted that time. And it's going to take some time to get the case from, you know, from the insurance company to get it to a mediation, get it resolved. That takes some time. Sometimes it can even take up to a year. Now, we always endeavor to do as quickly as possible. And often it's less than that. But you don't want to waste time with the appeal. All you're doing is you're pushing back the time when your case is going to be resolved. The number, again, one 821 5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca to, uh, to reach out through email. You know, the uh, we often hear the term surveillance when it comes to LTD and if you're off and are they surveilling you. If, if you are cut off LTD because of surveillance, the insurance company has of you. Should you even bother fighting the insurance company? Is surveillance always problematic for someone? No, no, it's not. In fact, a lot of times it can be quite helpful. In fact, when we come back from the break, I'm going to share a story from you that happened quite recently about a case I had where uh, the defendant had done surveillance and had suggested that it really... Um, solidified their viewpoint and was going to preclude my client from ever getting anything out of the court. And I hadn't actually seen it yet. But once I saw it, it was very clear that it was wishful thinking on their part. The point is that surveillance, just because they hire an investigator and just because you know they term it in a particular way, doesn't mean that it's actually relevant to your case. You have to do the dirty work. You have to take a look at what they've actually found and do a, you know, a fair analysis on whether or not that has an impact on the question that is being asked. And more often than not, I find that surveillance actually does nothing to support the defendant's case and often will support what the plaintiff is saying. So again, when we come back from the break, I'm going to actually give you an example of exactly how that can happen and the impact that that can have on a case. Love it. We'll get to that after that short break that we just mentioned. In the meantime, you want to uh, to reach out, you can do so. one 821 5900 is the number and help at disabilityrights.ca. It's a disability Law Show on Global News Radio. And welcome back, Disability Law Show. You want to uh, reach out, one 821 Any time would be fantastic. It is help at disabilityrights.ca through email as well. Just disabilityrights.ca will put you in touch and a way to uh, catch past radio shows and our television show as well. Uh, before we move on to another email, James, before we uh, took a break, you wanted to talk a little more about surveillance, which, you know, can generally scare the hell out of people, right? Yeah, I can. And so I, I was telling the audience before the break that I was going to discuss a case I had recently where there had been surveillance. Yeah. The defendants had suggested that the surveillance was going to be in some way devastating to my case. And so I, I'd gotten this memo from the from the defendants for mediation, and it was talking about all the things that they found in surveillance and that, you know, my client was seen driving on a major highway um, and, you know, that she was seen walking about freely and, um, you know, that generally, you know, it didn't really show that there was any evidence of any disability that would prevent her from working and so forth. And it, it, for context, this was actually not a long-term disability case. This was a personal injury case involving a car accident. And my client had injured her back and her hip as a result of the accident. So they were suggesting that she wasn't really injured, that she was okay. Now, 
this is what they had. Th- that's what they had put in their memo. But I hadn't actually seen the surveillance yet. And before the mediation, I asked the lawyer. I said, "Listen, you haven't served the surveillance on me, so I can't really, you know, give any credit to what you're saying here unless I've seen it for myself. You need to send it to me." He said, "Okay, I'll send it to you." And so after the mediation, which didn't settle, we she sends me the package and it has the discs for the surveillance, the video that the investigator had taken, and it had uh, a summary that she had provided of all the surveillance that had been conducted. Now, the summary itself, I didn't really care about that much. What I cared about were the hours that were logged by the investigator. And so what had happened, so there was nine days of surveillance over the course of several months that they had investigated my client over for a total of 99 and a half hours. (sighs) That you know, if you don't, if you're not in this area of law, if you're not practicing as a lawyer in this area of law, you may not understand whether that's a lot or a little. I'm going to tell you right now, that is an insane amount of surveillance. You almost never see that much surveillance, especially on a relatively modest file. Um, right. You know, I, I'm not going to tell you it's you know a small file. It's not, but it's also you know it's not a file where it's going to be millions and millions of dollars either. For mm-hmm. that kind of a file, sure, you know you want to make sure that you have everything square. But that is a lot of hours spent and a lot of money spent by the defendant on investigations. And in this 99 and a half hours, I think there was about a total of one and a half hours of time she was observed. And in that time, the vast majority of time, she was a passenger in a car driven by either her husband or her daughter. Now, she did drive on several occasions, but that doesn't contradict anything she said. In fact, she's she's back at work in a modified position, and she has acknowledged all along that she drives herself to and from work. So that's not earth-shattering in any way, shape, or form. And looking at what she did, you know, she was really almost never outside the house in those 99 and a half oh. hours, but for about an hour and change. And so so really what the defendant has done is they've really just proved my case. They've shown that, you know, my client is not someone who goes out and does things. There was, you know, a, one shopping trip that she did to Walmart with her daughter where she's basically leaning on a cart the whole time. But that doesn't, you know, what is that proving? It's nothing. You know, yeah. That is proving my case. If we ever have to go in front of a jury and the jury sees that they've spent 99 and a half hours following my client around, camped out outside her house, and all they have to show for it is an hour and a half of video that doesn't show her doing anything remotely active, what are they going to think? They're going to know that she's disabled. No one's that good at faking it. No one is staying inside their house that long, you know, over the course of several months on the off chance that there's an investigator outside their door. They've proven my case for me, so thank you very much. So to answer the question that um, you had asked before, no, if there's surveillance on your file, that does not mean that you should just give up. In fact, sometimes it's a very good thing because it's going to show that you are, in fact, disabled, that you're not able to work, that you're, in fact, injured, and you deserve to be compensated for it. Uh, email address help at disabilityrights.ca. That is the way to go. Uh, Leslie up next says, uh, a few years ago, I was injured during a skiing accident. I broke a bunch of bones as was permanently scarred. I was in therapy for a long time, and I was off work as a result as I focused on my rehab. I've been re- receiving long-term disability for over three years, and recently I've been feeling better. And I want to try to go back to work, but my doctor is hesitant. My insurance adjuster is saying that I really need to start making efforts to go back to work, and he's encouraging to do so despite what my doctor is saying. 
I'm just wondering what would happen if I try to go back and it doesn't work out and I didn't follow my doctor's advice. Can the insurance company refuse to keep paying me disability at that point? So, first of all, can they versus will they is the question that you should be asking. Can they? Yes. Um, They can, and they probably will as well. They will almost certainly cut you off if you've tried to go back to work and you're not able to do it. They will say, well, you weren't trying hard enough. Whether or not that's justified under the policy is a whole other question, and that really depends on whether or not you still have the support of your doctors. But really what I want to emphasize with you, Leslie, is it's imperative that you listen to what your doctors are saying to you. So it's great that you're feeling better, and I I love that you want to try and get back to work. I always like it when my clients say that to me. That's the kind of client that I want. I don't want a client that the, the insurance company is going to be able to paint as a malingerer. So someone who's eager to get back to work, that's great. And if you can do it, that's great too. But if your doctor's hesitant, I really want to know why. What is it that your doctor is concerned about? Because if your doctor is concerned that going back to work is actually going to set you back, then listen to your doctor. Until your doctor is on board, I would strongly recommend not going back to work. As soon as your doctor gives you the green light, go ahead. By all means, have at it. You're much better off if you're able to go back to work and earn your full paycheck. But I want to make sure that you're not putting your health in jeopardy by doing it. It's not up to me to make that call. I'm not a doctor, so I'm never going to provide a client with with medical advice. The only advice I can give you from a medical perspective is listen to what your doctors are saying. But if you ignore your doctor and you go back to work and things get worse, well, the one thing I will say is if your insurer is on board with it at the time, then it's going to be difficult for them to argue that you're only this way because you ignored your doctor's advice as long as they were aware of that as well too. So they're in this with you from that perspective, but it doesn't mean that they won't cut you off anyway. They'll use it as a justification. They'll say that, well, you said that you were ready to go back to work and that you're not is really just a reflection that you're not trying hard enough. And I suspect they probably would cut you off in that circumstance. If that were to happen, we would bring a legal claim in the circumstances. And hopefully, if you haven't been back at work for more than six months, you wouldn't have to wait through that elimination period. You would be able to go back on benefits or entitled to receive them right away. And so hopefully, we would be able to bring a legal claim and claim for that full amount. Yeah, we'll take a, a little bit of a break, guys. The uh, the number one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred help at disabilityrights.ca. That is the email address we uh, will refer to and get right back at it after break. Disability Law Show on Global News Radio, and back to the Disability Law Show. Reaching out one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred to get a hold of uh, James or Savannah when we're not doing this show. Anytime you can contact them there, email is help at disabilityrights.ca. And to listen to past shows on the radio and the TV show as well, which is just as cool, that is just disabilityrights.ca as well. Rosalind, next email up says, James, in March I will be two years since my husband has been on LTD. And just like you always say on your show, his adjuster is starting to talk about him returning to another type of job. The problem is that he has a degenerative neurological disease and his neurologist is adamant that he should not be going back to any type of job because of his flare-ups. Can the insurance company just cut him off if he doesn't try to do another type of job? For background, my husband is 56 years old and worked as an IT consultant for over 20 years. Okay. Well, I really appreciate the the email, Rosalind. It's important to use this opportunity to talk about the LTD claims process and the test that is used in order to determine whether or not you're entitled to those benefits. So when you apply, 
after you go through this, there's an elimination period. It's usually like six months before you're entitled to actually start receiving benefits. During that elimination period and for the first two years, you're entitled to benefits under virtually all policies. You're entitled to benefits if you pass the test, which at that point is whether or not you have a disability that prevents you from doing your own occupation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the first two years plus the elimination period. That's the test. Gotcha. What Rosalind is saying is that her husband is coming up on that two-year mark of having received benefits, and they're telling him he's got to go back and find other work. Mm -hmm. And so the reason for that is because after two years, the definition of totally disabled under the policy changes. It changes to be whether or not you're able to do any occupation that you're qualified for by training, education, or experience. And if you are, then you would no longer be entitled to receive benefits, even if it's not for the job that you had before. So it is fair to say that after two years, the test does in fact get more difficult, but that doesn't mean that you're not entitled to benefits after two years. If you can't do another occupation, then you're entitled to continue to receive benefits. And what Rosalind's, what Rosalind's husband's doctor is apparently saying is that he should not be going back to any kind of work because he suffers from these flare-ups. He's got a degenerative neurological condition. So that mm -hmm. means it's getting worse. It's not getting better. It's something that we know is going to deteriorate over time. And if his doctor is saying that he's having these flare-ups now, and they prevent him from going back to work, that means he's probably never going to be in a position where he's going to be able to go back to any kind of full-time employment. And that's really important because even if the insurer can make an argument that he could go back to some part-time job, even you know some minimum wage, um, you know maybe a job as a telemarketer, for example. Right. Well, that's not going to qualify either. Now, the reason for that is because in that period after the two years, that any occupation period is what we call it, where the test becomes whether you can return to any occupation. It isn't simply a matter of saying, well, okay, you can do you know, this job as you know, a greeter at a department store or as a telemarketer. Um, what you have to show is that there is a job that the person can do that will earn them commensurate income. Right. That is the term that is used by the courts when they're trying to decide whether or not they're people are entitled to benefits after two years. Commensurate income. And what that means is a job that is going to pay you about 60 to 70 percent of the of the benefits that you or sorry of the income that you had been earning before essentially an amount that's equal to the benefits that you're receiving usually it's around two-thirds and so if the insurer can't show that you're able to earn roughly two-thirds of what you had been making before well they still have to keep paying you the benefits even if there is a job that you can do, if you're not able to earn about two-thirds of what you were making before, you're still entitled. So in this particular case, Rosalind, given what your husband's doctors are saying, it seems to me pretty clear that he's going to be entitled to benefits after the two-year mark too. So what do you do? Well, number one, you listen to what your doctors are saying. If your doctors are saying he shouldn't go back to work because it's going to cause these flare-ups, hmm. well, you got to listen to what they're saying. That's medical advice. That goes. That trumps anything that I'm going to say or any insurance company is going to say. You listen to what your doctors are saying. And if the insurer is going to cut you off because of it, then so be it. We bring a legal claim and we get what you're entitled or what your husband's entitled to anyway. But you have to follow your doctor's advice. And in any case, you know, if your husband follows what the insurance company wants him to and ignores his doctors and he goes back to work and he has those flare-ups, he's not going to be able to keep working anyway. And the insurer is still not going to start paying the benefits at that point in time. They may be required to under the policy, but they won't. 
they won't. That's our experience is when people go back to work and try and go back to work, if they're not successful, then typically speaking, the insurer isn't going to reinstate them into the policy afterwards. I'm not going to tell you it never happens, but it's pretty no. rare. It's pretty rare, and I wouldn't count on it, which means you know, I'm certainly never going to discourage someone from going back to work if they feel that they can do it and their doctors are on board. But if their doctors are not on board and you don't feel like it's something that you're going to be successful at, then you can't do it. You can't do it. You have to listen to your medical team and follow their advice. And reach out on the phone as well if you have more questions for James, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. In that regard, bounce over to another email. Jimmy says, uh, I was cut off long-term disability because the adjuster said that I wasn't getting enough treatments, but I live in a rural area in Ontario, and my psychologist just moved to Ottawa, so I'm looking for another one. My family doctor is trying to find me someone who can help me with my anxiety and phobias. I don't know what to do. Well, this is a difficult problem to deal with because you need to try and get any treatment that's reasonable, but if there's nobody in the immediate area and it's going to take you three or four hours to get to somebody, that's not reasonable either, and that might make your condition worse. So first of all, I would suggest you know doing what you can to be creative. Um, I've had situations where I've had clients that have gotten uh, mental health therapy by, via Skype, which I know is not ideal. I know uh, many therapists won't do that. There are some that will. Whether or not that's helpful, helpful or not, I'll leave that to the medical professionals to decide. But if you feel it's going to be helpful and you can p- find a treatment provider, it's probably at least worth trying if you're in a situation where that's the only option that you have. Failing that, well, you know, the other thing that you can do is you can bounce it back to your insurer and say, listen, I can't find anybody for this treatment. Who do you recommend? Now, if you've listened to this show, you know that my usual advice is to never take the treatment provider that's suggested by your insurance company. Mm -hmm. This is perhaps the lone exception to it is if you simply cannot find anyone in your area, especially if you live in a rural area. If you can't find anybody, then throw it back to your insurer. And if your insurer is able to find someone, then proceed with caution. And if they can't, then they have no basis to cut you off for lack of getting treatment because they can't find anybody either. We'll uh, take a short break. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. You have any other questions you'd like to ask? You can use the email or go to mydisabilityquestions.com. And if you got a moment, slide over to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Of course, there's a ton there about employment law, but there's also a section on uh, disability as well. So feel free to uh, to use that. Disability Law Show continues. Global News Radio. This is the Disability Law Show. James Fireman is answering your questions today. Uh, the best way to reach out uh, for the remainder of the show, of course, is email help at disabilityrights.ca. You can call them uh, outside of the show hour as well, one 821 5900 Chelsea, email up next, says, my husband has been on long-term disability for the last five years. He is 58 years old. Recently, his new insurance adjuster has been saying that they wanted to try a gradual return-to-work program. She says that their consultant reviewed his file and thinks that it's time for him to go to work, go back. My husband is very afraid that he won't be able to and his doctor is hesitant about this. What happens if he tries to go back and it makes his condition worse? Can he still go back on disability? He's also uh, getting CPP disability, by the way. 
Okay, Chelsea, thank you for the email. So, first of all, I'd really want to understand why it is that your doctor is hesitant for your husband to go back. And if it's if your doctor is suggesting that your husband's condition might get worse as a result of going back, then you can't do it. He can't go back to work if his doctor is suggesting that it's a bad idea, medically speaking. If he's okay with it, and if he's just you know not really sure whether it's going to be successful or not, but it's not likely to make you worse, and if your husband thinks that he might be able to do it, then perhaps you give it a shot. Um, but what I will say is, you know, the last part of your email really caught my attention, that he's getting CPP disability benefits. So let's talk about that for a second. So CPP disability is paid by the federal government as part of your CPP, and which typically you get after retirement at 65. But if you're disabled and you've been paying into CPP, then you can apply for CPP disability. And if you pass their test, then you get these monthly benefits from CPP. Their test for CPP disability is a harder test to pass than the test for long-term disability. Long-term disability is just about whether or not you can return to your own occupation or after two years, any occupation. CPP disability requires a severe and prolonged disability. That is a harder test to pass. In virtually every case, if you if you qualify for CPP disability, if you pass their test, you should also be passing the LTD test. And that's meaningful to me because if your husband passes CPP disability, he should still be entitled to continue to receive LTD disability. And if his doctors are really hesitant for him to go back to work, that's just underscoring that entire point, that it's probably not a good idea that he goes back. And so my suggestion is that you listen to your doctors, and if your LTD insurer cuts you off, then we bring a legal claim. Now, if you're not going to take my advice and you're going to try and go back to work, I'll answer your question, which is what happens if you try and you're not able to do it. Well, that's what we call a recurrent claim. So if your husband goes back to work and he's not successful, let's say he's there for a couple of weeks and just cannot do it, and wants to go back on benefits, he's entitled to request being put back on claim right away. So usually when you apply initially for LTD benefits, there's this elimination period, and it's usually six months, sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, but there's a period of time that you have to wait before you're entitled to start receiving benefits. So you have a disability that prevents you from working, you wait the elimination period, and then you start getting benefits presuming that you meet their test. If you start receiving your benefits and then attempt to go back to work and you're not able to do it, you don't have to go through that elimination period again. It's called a recurrent claim and you should be entitled to start receiving benefits as soon as your attempt at work finishes. So as long as it's not longer than something, it's usually set out in the policy as I think it's six months in most cases. So as long as your attempt to return to work is less than that period of time, then you're entitled to have a recurrent claim and receive benefits right away. In practice, though, your insurer is typically going to deny the recurrent claim and say that, well, no, you're actually able to continue working. You're just not trying hard enough or some other bogus justification um, to to avoid having to pay your benefits beyond um, when you started back at work. So that's the way that it works. So yeah, you are entitled to get your benefits again, but it may well not happen. Want to uh, touch on Elijah's email, at least read it out here and probably continue it after the break. It goes like this. Uh, Elijah says, my brother had a stroke about two years ago and went on short-term disability. He's still recovering and can't go to his job as a plumber, which he's been doing for over 20 years. 
His long-term disability insurer denied his claim last year, and he appealed it, but was rejected again. He's looking to sell his house, and we're trying to figure out options. Can you guys help? And if so, how long would it take? He's not doing well, both physically and mentally now. Yeah, we certainly can help. Um, It sounds as though there's a good basis for a legal claim here. Um, The how long it takes, well, typically speaking, it's my experience that from the date a client signs a retainer, it's usually a year or less that we're at mediation, and the vast majority of cases will settle at mediation. Now, I say a year because I don't like to have clients come back and be disappointed um, because they were expecting it to be, you know, a few weeks or even a month or two. But it's not necessarily the case that every case is going to take a full year to resolve, and in fact, I'm seeing more frequently that I'll issue a claim and once it comes across the desk of someone in the legal department and they assign a lawyer to it, I'll get a call pretty quickly looking to resolve it without mediation very early on in the process, sometimes in a matter of you know two, three months, four months, something in that range. That is not what typically happens, but it's getting less uncommon. I do see that happening more and more these days. Having said all that, your expectation should be around a year with the understanding that we're always going to try and do it as quickly as possible. And the reason for that is very simple. We work on a contingency fee retainer. And what that means is we don't get paid unless the insurance company pays you. And that means we're not getting paid until the end of the case. So number one, we're trying to get as much as we can. And number two, we're trying to do it as quickly as possible in all cases. We'll take that short break and get back into more of your questions and emails. You want to follow up, 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And always check out mydisabilityrights.com as well. For, uh, for lots more information, we'll take a short break. James can answer more of your questions right here at Disability Law Show, Global News Radio, number five. And back, Disability Law Show continues, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. You know, when you're dealing with LTD disability claims, sometimes they, uh, they have cost of living adjustment. Uh, what are those, the riders? What are those, and, and why are they important? So cost of living adjustment simply means that Each year, the amount of benefits that you're entitled to is going to be indexed to inflation or the cost of living, um, and it's going to go up by that amount um, year over year. And so if you you have a claim and you're on on claim for 20 years, over time, if you're just getting the same amount that you were getting when you first became disabled, that may not be a significant enough money down the road to support you. But if you have this cost of living um, adjustment in the in the policy, then you're going to get a little bit more year over year, and hopefully that's going to keep up with how much you need in order to pay your expenses down the road. And so this is some. If you have a private policy, this can be available by a rider. A, a rider is simply a, a part of an insurance contract that you can pay an additional amount for to get additional coverage. So there's cost of living adjustments. There is the um, own occupation rider. So sometimes we talk about the test changing after two years to be whether you mm-hmm. do any occupation, and that's a more difficult test. So sometimes there's an own occupation rider, which that says that the initial test, whether you can return to your own job, would be the test that applies throughout the duration of your coverage until age 65. And so these are all options that you can purchase in some cases with your disability benefits. 
Now, looking at the cost of living adjustment, the COLA, we call it COLA, whether or not that's worthwhile often really just depends on your age. Um, if you are you know, in your 20s or 30s, it makes a lot of sense to have a cost right. of living adjustment because if you are disabled now and you're on benefits for 10, 15, 20 years, that money is really not going to sustain you that far down the road. And so it can be really useful to have that adjustment. But if you're in your you know, mid to late 50s and your benefits terminate at 65 or if you're in your early 60s, it really probably isn't worthwhile for you because it's not really going to make a significant difference one year over another. It's really over the course of 10, 15 years that you see that make a significant dent in the amount of money that you're getting year to year. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That is the email address. Dimitri, up next is my wife's aunt, uh, aunt or aunt, depending on what side of the border you're listening on, uh, slipped on ice and broke her back. She's in the hospital, and the doctors say that it'll take a long time for her to heal, but that she'll never be the same again and will likely need a walker. She's only 62 and was working as a dental hygienist, which seems like she won't be able to do. Uh, we have pictures of the place where she fell because my wife was with her at the time. The parking lot was very icy, and other people fell there too, according to the security guard. Uh, what should we do now? Uh, Dimitri, great question. And what I do see in here is that you took pictures of the area uh, where where she fell, and that's that's really great. The reason why that's really important is because when you have a slip and fall injury, it's important to make sure that there is evidence of what the area looked like at the time when the accident happened. So you want to understand whether or not it was shoveled properly, whether there was salt put down, and whether or not there was in fact ice in the area, how big the ice was. These are all really important things that can help determine whether or not a particular uh, company or property owner or winter maintenance contractor is going to be responsible. And so, you know, if, if this has happened before, that would be relevant as well too. And so anybody who's familiar with the area, it's important that we get their information too. One thing I really want to point out just because of the time of year is if you do slip and fall, in addition to getting photographs of the area, if you slip and fall on city property, it's really important that you give notice to the city within 10 days of the accident happening. And the reason for that is there is a law, it's in the Municipal Act is what it's called. If you do not provide notice to the city within 10 days, they can take the position that because you fail to give them this, this notice that's required under the Municipal Act, that your claim should be rejected. And sometimes a court will listen to that. And the basis for that, the reason why that makes some sense is because the city is going to have you know, dozens, if not hundreds of claims from people slipping and falling on their property, and they need to be given a fair opportunity to go and investigate the circumstances. And if it's more than 10 days, there's very little chance that they're going to be able to get any idea of what the area looked like at the time that it happened. So you have to give this notice. You do it by going online and you search for a city clerk of wherever the city is that you fell. And usually there's an online form that you can fill out. You provide your name, your contact information, the details, including the specific location of where you fell, what injuries you've suffered, and that's that. You do that whether or not you know if you're going to bring a claim. And so what I mean by that is if you slip and fall and you're injured, you may not know in that moment if you want to bring a legal claim, if you want to you know, pursue legal action against the defendants, you may not know. And that's fine. But even if you don't know, you want to give that notice to the city so that if down the road your injuries are significant, they prevent you from working, you have some permanent injury, you want to make sure that that right to bring a claim down the road is 
preserved. So whether or not you know if you're going to bring a claim, give that notice to the city now. MyDisabilityQuestions.com, that's another place for you to ask some questions, and we answer them just like that email you just heard. You want to send that along. we still got a few minutes to go here. Help at uh, DisabilityRights.ca is the way to go. There's also the phone number anytime, 1-855-821-5900, Disability Law Show on Global News Radio. Disability Law Show reaching out, 1-855-821-5900, help at DisabilityRights.ca. Kale is uh, is up next, says, I've been fighting with my insurance company for over a year about uh, disability payments, my disability payments. They keep asking my doctor for more and more information and reports, and they keep saying that there is no objective reason why I can't work. My back is very bad. I was in an accident many years ago, and in the past few years, it really flared up. I'm a mechanic. I'm a mechanic, so I'm always moving around the garage, and I just can't do it. I have my family doctor and my back doctor. They both wrote that I can't go back to work because of my back, and I don't know what to do with this insurance company. They won't listen. My wife told me to ask you if you can help. So I really appreciate the email, and there is a particular phrase that you use, Kale, in your email that I bumped on, that really stuck out for me. And that's the, the phrase, no objective reason why I can't work. That's what your insurer uh-huh. is saying to you. Um, that is really, really improper language for an insurance company to be using. There is nothing within your long-term disability policy, presuming it's a standard policy. There's nothing in a standard long-term disability policy that requires you show objective evidence of anything. All that's required is that you are suffering from a disability that prevents you from doing your own occupation or after two years, any occupation that you're qualified for by training, education, or experience. There's nothing in there that says you need to provide objective evidence. And so what that means is that if you are suffering from symptoms, but the doctors can't figure out why, um, or you know they can't show on an x-ray, that doesn't mean you're not entitled to it. If you are legitimately suffering from symptoms that limit your function to the extent that you are not able to work, then you're entitled to receive those benefits. Now, that's not a matter of opinion. That's not something that I'm guessing at or that I'm trying to argue with an insurer over. This is what has been said by the Supreme Court of Canada. The analysis is not about a diagnosis. It is about the symptoms. And if you are legitimately suffering from those symptoms, whether or not medical science has advanced to the point where they can pinpoint the precise reason why is completely irrelevant. If you are suffering from symptoms that prevent you from working, you are entitled to your benefits. Your doctors are saying that you are suffering from these symptoms. They are supporting your claim. And that tells me all I need to know. You're entitled to the benefits. That the insurer has been foolish enough to say that there's no objective basis for that, that there's no objective reason why you can't go back to work. They use that word objective. That is a big no-no. And there is recent case law. There are other court cases where insurers have used that language and the court has slapped them on the wrist for it. They've said, you're not allowed to do that. Because you think about it, what if you have a mental health claim? What if you're suffering from depression and anxiety? Where are you going to find objective evidence for depression right. and anxiety? Like, there, you know, There's no x-ray that you can show that is going to say, oh, well, this person has depression or anxiety. It is by nature subjective, but that doesn't mean that people who have mental health claims aren't entitled to disability as well. Well, the same thing is true for physical claims. Even if you can't show it objectively, it doesn't mean it's not there. There are just many things that medical science is not able to detect yet 
But over time, as medical science improves, they're able to they're able to show up. And so, if you take a look at what we're able to figure out now versus 50 years ago, it's night and day. But that doesn't mean that the person 50 years ago wasn't suffering. It just means that technology's advanced to the point where we can pinpoint precisely why now. It doesn't change your entitlement. James, we're uh, we're good for another week, brother. Uh, good work, and uh, to reach out, get a hold of James or Savan, member of the team. Yeah, it is simple. You don't know the number by now. I'll give it to you one more time: one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. The website is disabilityrights.ca. Go there for past radio shows and updates on the TV show as well. The email which we use every show is help at disabilityrights.ca. And if you haven't used it yet, mydisabilityquestions.com. You use that and you can ask your questions. There's a pretty good probability that has been asked and answered before. If not, leave it there. It will get answered in a short order. And I always remind you to go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. There's employment information there, of course, but there's also a section on disability law, anonymous, and uh, you can walk away having the information. Use that to particular website, uh, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. And there's a contact button as well if you carry, uh, carry on from there. Till next time, Disability Law Show right here on Global News Radio.